Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message Dr. Newfeld is entitled, The Mark of the Covenant. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Sometime after the early church began, the church itself had such an immense crisis that if it had not been resolved, the church would have failed. All that Christianity would ever have become would have been but a small sect within Judaism. The message of Jesus, his life, his cross, his resurrection would have been a small movement known and shared by but a few people while the world itself went on its way oblivious to the message and without access to the saving message that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And did you know that to state the matter in entirely human terms, the message of Jesus almost never made it out of the gate. It almost died in infancy. The early church had a crisis that almost destroyed her ability to touch the world and fulfill the promise of Abraham. But because the church survived this crisis, indeed, because the church overcame this crisis with clear insight and resolve, the gospel of Jesus penetrated to the entire world so that now people of every language, tribe, and tongue can hear and believe. So what was that crisis? Well, it had everything to do with the circumcision that we read about in Genesis 17. I'm going to get to Genesis 17 in a moment, but before I do, let's get back to the crisis. This crisis marked the watershed moment in Christian history. It's recorded in Acts 15. The chapter begins with the words, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, like all theological debates, this debate about circumcision had a context. So let me explain that context. The church of Jesus began in Jerusalem when at the preaching of Peter, 3,000 souls confessed their sins and trusted in Christ and were baptized into the Christian faith. So the early church had begun. Now, this group was made up almost entirely of Jews who had come to realize that their long-expected Messiah was indeed Jesus of Nazareth. So it wasn't long after that, indeed, it's recorded in Acts 2.47, that Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, but those being saved every day were the Jewish people. Now, all that was very good, even excellent, but then strange things started happening. I mean, the first of those things is recorded in Acts 8 when an Ethiopian official who loved the God of Israel and would come to Jerusalem for the feast actually encountered one of the Christian evangelists and he became a convert on the spot and was baptized and he went home to Ethiopia and began telling everyone about Jesus and the Ethiopian people began to hear that they had a history in Abraham. You know, the next strange thing was recorded in Acts 10, and it occurred when none other than Peter himself saw a vision that caused him to enter the home of an unclean Gentile centurion, and he would lead that home full of uncircumcised, pork-eating Roman military men and their families, that is, Gentiles, to faith in Christ, and Peter baptized everyone in that house. Indeed, Peter said, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name, and I guess that everyone meant uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentile military men who were occupying the land of Israel under the orders of the Roman government. 
Well, as disconcerting as all of that was, it was still a fringe movement. I mean, what I mean is there were a small minority of the church like that. But then something even more disturbing happened. Luke records that in Acts 13, and you're going to get a picture of it. Verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, I hope you heard that. Barnabas, well, that's a good Jewish name. But then Simeon, who was called Niger, well, oops, Niger comes from the Latin. It means black. It indicates that he was most likely a black man from Africa. And then Lucius of Cyrene, well, Cyrene is a Roman province in Libya. And Lucius is a Latin name, meaning that he's of Roman ancestry. And then Menaean was a member of the court of Herod Tetrarch, meaning that he was a close friend of Herod Antipas. And the last of the elders there in that church was, of course, Saul, who later became Paul. Now, that means that the Christian church in Antioch was made up of Jewish and Gentile leaders, and that church was in Syria, and that church, a church with Gentile leaders, commissioned two of its members to go out as missionaries, planting Gentile churches in at least six different cities in Cyprus and in Turkey. And the number of Gentiles, that is, uncircumcised, pork-eating Christ followers, was increasing at a rapid and alarming rate. That's what led to the crisis. From Abraham onward, remember that Moses recorded this, we know that all who are sons of Abraham get circumcised as a sign of their solidarity with their father, and unless they bear that mark, they're not his children. Now, to be clear, if it had been demanded that the Gentiles would have to undergo circumcision and submit to dietary rules of Judaism— which would have included cleansing your home from everything that's non-kosher, including contact with those who are non-kosher. Well, I hope you see that if those demands would have stood, the Gentiles would never have been won, and the evangelistic ministry of the church would have ceased. See, the demand for circumcision would have kept the gospel of Jesus as a subcategory in wider Judaism only. Yes, there would have been an odd and occasional Gentile, but not a gospel for Indians and the Chinese and the Europeans and the Syrians in Antioch. I hope you see what I mean. See, on the one hand, how can they be children of Abraham if they're not circumcised? And on the other hand, well, how will they hear the gospel or the good news if you demand this and a kosher diet? I mean, that was the crisis that almost stopped the gospel of Jesus from reaching the world. Now, With all that as an introduction, let's go to Genesis 17, where we're going to find the establishment of the practice of circumcision. Abraham is now 99 years old, and he's still awaiting the birth of a son by Sarai. But God has come to him and told him, never waver, simply believe. And with that, we come to Genesis 17, verses 9 to 14, where we read, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. 
so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And with those words, the sign to all the children of Abraham, that is, all the male children of Abraham, was that they must submit to this rite as the sign of their faith. But before we ask how it was that this was not required of Christians today, we need to ask what it originally meant. See, all of Israel from the time of Abraham to the present day would take upon them the mark of circumcision, having received it from Abraham. It would become the defining mark on all Jewish males. It simply would not be possible to think of oneself as a Jew without this mark. So what was all that about? Well, I want you to think about it this way. God wanted a physical mark on Abraham that would always identify him as the man whom God had chosen to bless. But why had God placed a mark on his sexual organ? Well, the answer has nothing to do with health, as some have suggested. No mention is made of such a thing. Now, if I can just digress a bit, many of you are aware that the health significance of circumcision has often been debated. Now, I don't want to get into that debate. I mean, I leave it up to parents of boys to make that choice in your family. But clearly, in Genesis and in the rest of the Bible, never is there given a health reason for the practice. That's not the purpose at all. Rather, God placed a mark on Abraham's sexual organ to indicate that Abraham's seed, that is, his offspring, would be holy to him. The act of intercourse was to be done before God. That is, God would bless the act, for it was through this act that God would bring his holy people into the world. Now, I need to stop here for just a moment and have us think this through. In the day in which we live, we've separated out the sexual act from the life of discipleship. I mean, even Christian people have bought into the line that sex is simply for the purpose of pleasure or as a biological release. But that's a secular interpretation of sex, divorced from God's intention. So God gave circumcision to Abraham so that it would never be forgotten that every generation born under the sign of Abraham was holy to the Lord and was created to trust in Abraham's God. In Doubt exists to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. Through a weekly radio and podcast show where I, Ryan McCurdy, will be your in-doubt host talking with recognized Christian leaders on various subjects about how young adults can integrate their faith into today's culture. In-doubt also has weekly blogs, Bible studies for individuals and groups, and live events. And the best part, it's all for free. So why the name In-doubt? Well, because many young adults find themselves literally in doubt divided and asking tough questions. This isn't just with reference to their faith, but with many things. Our hope is to help young adults face their doubts and provide these gospel-rich principles, truths, and applications to help them think critically and biblically. Want to find out more information? Visit us online at indoubt.ca. Go back to Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God's original purpose in creating male and female and, and giving them the gift of sex was so that as image bearers of God, they would fill the earth with his glory. 
Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So have children who are created to rule over the creation on my behalf. And so children were to come out of a loving, intimate relationship. I mean, the product of pure and undefiled love and the product of a loving God. Of course, human beings fell. And in the fall, the image became corrupted. And in its corruption, we forgot what God's gifts were for. And in our sin, God became our enemy. But God called Abraham and promised him the beginning of a new race, a race of men and women dedicated to God. They would know the reality of God being for them. And they would become known as men and women who put their trust in the creator who loved them and called them to be his own. And as God was preparing Abraham and Sarah for that role, and the role of bringing into being a race of people that would usher the savior of the human race into the world, God reaffirmed his covenant with them by placing a mark on his sexual organs so that he would never forget that their offspring belonged to the Lord. Interestingly enough, the New Testament carries that idea forward. Consider, for instance, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. There we read, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Now, without getting into the intricate argument that Paul is making in that text, I quote it to show that God is after a holy, set-apart people of God among the next generation of believers. That's why the discipleship of our children is a first priority. Okay, all of that stands behind the idea of circumcision. It's the sign of the covenant that God will create for Abraham an offspring too many to count that would bring blessing to the earth and it would inherit all that God had created the human race for. Now, according to Genesis 17, verse 13, we read, So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. I don't know about you, but everlasting, well, it doesn't sound like a 10-year plan. It sounds like, well, everlasting. But getting back to the situation in the early church, this very sign of the covenant was what was at stake, for this sign now became a hindrance to the fulfilling of the covenant of Abraham. I mean, what to do? So let's do a brief study of circumcision in the rest of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses gives Israel this command. He says, "'Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn.'" It seems clear that it wasn't long that God would point out that there were people in Israel who had the physical mark of circumcision, but whose heart or whose inner self bore no resemblance to the mark on their bodies. They needed to get the outer and the inner to be in line with one another. And so the phrase circumcision of the heart became a metaphor for that. Now let's take it one step further. Some 1,300 years after Abraham, in the time of Jeremiah, here I'm reading Jeremiah 10, verse 25, God speaks and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now, can you detect in that statement the anger of God toward those who rely on circumcision while they're not the sons of Abraham in their hearts? Now, having made that statement, we come next to the situation in the time of the early church. In Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, he addresses the issue of sin, starting with the Jews and then moving to the Gentiles. 
So to the Jews, he says, and I'm reading from verses 25 to 27, he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The point here is a prophetic word to a community that prided itself in circumcision but was no longer a people who trusted in the God of Abraham. Circumcision through history had become a kind of idolatry because people with uncircumcised hearts were boasting in the external sign of circumcision as if the sign itself made them acceptable before God. So let's get back to that crisis that almost destroyed the the worldwide evangelistic ministry of the early church. The church has always understood itself as the spiritual children of Abraham made that way through faith in Jesus Christ. But it was this sign of the covenant, circumcision, the sign that the offspring of Abraham were holy, that was the sticking point. What should one do with uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentiles who loved the God of Abraham through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Acts 15 verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Indeed, as Luke describes the situation then, there was no small dissension and debate. Situation was tense and it was rancorous and the air was filled with accusations. And then after much debate, says Luke, Peter took his turn and spoke. He related the incident in the house of Cornelius when he had led an entire Gentile extended household to faith in Christ. I mean, they were all Roman military families, all uncircumcised, all pork-eating Gentiles. And Peter says, and it's recorded in Acts 15, verse 8 and 9, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And when Peter said God cleansed their hearts by faith, he might also have said God circumcised their hearts. That is, to use the Old Testament language, the foreskin of their hearts had been circumcised by God, and in his eyes, they were circumcised. And after Peter spoke, it was time for Barnabas and Saul to speak. And Luke simply says, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after those things, Peter called the delegation to study Amos 9, 11 to 12, and Isaiah 43, verse 7, and Jeremiah 14, verse 9, and Daniel 9, verse 19. That is, he then led them to do a Bible study. And with that, the church emerged from their crisis. They actually wrote a letter to Gentile Christians. In fact, let me quote it to you. They wrote, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, as an aside, the thing about blood and strangled animals was significant because obeying those restrictions would take away the offense from Jewish Christians when Jews and Gentiles lived together in the same church. I mean, they were saying to Gentile Christians, use your freedom in such a way that you don't offend your Jewish brothers. 
But here they made a distinction between those things that related specifically to the relationship between Gentiles and Jewish Christians and those things that all believers must follow in all circumstances. See, don't unnecessarily offend your brother. Don't get involved in any sexual act outside of God's ordained marriage and stay clear of idols. All believers must submit to this. That's a part of a life of faith. And with that, the gospel of Jesus Christ spread like wildfire, reaching to the ends of the earth. Crisis averted. Jesus proclaimed, praise God. And what of the circumcision in Genesis 17? Well, isn't it an everlasting command? Well, Yes, it is. But let's remember that the outward sign is for the physical descendants of Abraham. And I would be happy to say that all physical descendants of Abraham do well to observe it. But for all the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the the inward sign is the circumcision of the heart. It's the change in heart that finds God to be trustworthy. It is the heart of all who, like Abraham, allow their entire lives to be shaped by God's unchangeable promises. As Paul would say in Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Indeed, external matters are external matters. But matters that change a man or a woman from within, those are the life-transforming matters of faith. Heavenly Father, I pray that We will always know the difference between those matters that are external that may limit the amount of strife between believers and those matters that are ultimate, those matters of the heart that change us to be men and women who love the same God that Abraham loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John, an interesting topic today, but let me ask you this question. What would you say today are the marks of a Christian? How would people recognize that we're followers of Jesus? Let me summarize some of the marks of every single believer. Number one, we love God and the things of God far above our love for all other things. I mean, that is a mark that we have. Uh, Following that mark is that we find sin to be offensive in ourselves wherever we find it. That is, it's not just being caught in our sins. It's that sin itself is an offensive thing. So uh, we do that. Uh, I think another thing is that we have a desire for the work that God calls us to do. And so we want to be found to be about the master's business. That's part of every single believer. So, you know, those are some of the things that we find of every single believer And then, of course, there's the working out of that stuff, such as, you know, knowing what my spiritual gifts are and using them for the glory of God and things of that nature. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hey, this is Rika Seward, and I'll be joining Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. Join us for a week of laughter, inspirational music, worship, and spiritual refreshment. This is a cruise for the entire family, and beyond the incredible entertainment and amenities that the Oasis of the Seas provides, we'll have opportunity to enjoy all the activities available in ports of call, including Labadee, Jamaica, and Cozumel. Are you looking for a winter escape? Join me, Rika Seward, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and the Laugh Again team for this incredible, fun-filled journey and return refreshed and restored both physically and spiritually. 
It's all happening this coming February 3rd to 10th, and space is limited. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.